Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. I am departing from the series that we've been doing for a couple of months on the book of Galatians because I want to talk to you about what it means to be thankful in the dark times. That's my message, actually. Let's be thankful in the dark times. I want to really challenge us today with the idea that thankfulness will change our perspective of life and also, believe it or not, will work kind of like a magnet to attract us to a greater closeness and intimacy in our relationship with Jesus. And I'm going to show you a story today where you can see how thankfulness brought Jesus and a desperate man together. I want to start with a, and I've shared this story here before, but it's so appropriate. Gary Thomas in his book, The Beautiful Fight, shares this story. He says, a businessman in a service industry grew weary of being yelled at all day. He tired of getting sprayed with angry spittle from dissatisfied customers who expected five-star service at Motel 6 prices. One day, he became oddly detached during yet another customer tirade. He felt as though he were watching a movie. In fact, he couldn't help but think that the angry woman's antics made her look like a monkey. That observation gave him a brilliant idea. He posted a giant mirror behind the front desk, and the customer tirades all but ceased. When people saw how rude and hateful they looked while yelling and screaming, they stopped yelling and screaming. What is true physically is also true spiritually. Whether it's complaining or expressing anger in a way that, that puts people down, or thanksgiving, praise, celebration, whatever we do ultimately provides a mirror of our own attitudes. And our attitudes provide a picture of our heart. Through it, we begin to see our motives from a much different perspective. Have you ever, you know, I, I have a little fantasy. I, I haven't acted on it. I just want to say that. That's my, my pre-qualifier. But I have a little fantasy sometime when I'm at a family gathering where there's some tension or I'm hanging out with people where there's some tension or I'm watching people interact in a way where, you know, there's some yelling and screaming and some attitudes and people are being kind of mean and ugly. I just kind of want to put a video recorder on. Anybody ever wanted to do that? And just video maybe an hour of these interactions and then gather everybody around a little bit later and say, hey, remember earlier when we were having that really fun time? You know, when you were like yelling at each other and I want to show you what it looked like and throw it up there on the screen and let us be shocked, embarrassed by the way that we often speak and act. You ever had somebody in your family or a friend that you just wish you could hit a record button and let them hear the way they speak, the way they come across, their attitude, their tone, their anger? Well, in the same way, thanksgiving. When you become a person that begins to recognize the goodness of God all around you, not just in the things He gives you, but in your relationships and in the people around you, when you begin to engage in the discipline of thanksgiving, you'll notice something. Your whole perspective to life will change 
And the way you feel internally will change. And you'll actually become, I know this is a weird concept, you'll become more attractive to God. I'm going to show you that in the scripture today. I define thankfulness this way. Here's, my, here's a definition I wrote down here. Thankfulness, thankfulness, is the natural outflow of a heart that sees things as they truly are. Thankful people recognize that all they have and all they are comes from God. Thankful people are filled up, and so they return and give thanks to God, who then fills them up again and again as they offer thanks. Thankfulness is funny. It's something that comes out of an overflow of seeing rightly. If I understand, if I truly believe what James tells us, that every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there's no inconsistency in His character, no variableness, no shadow of turning, meaning God's, you know, God is consistent in everything He does. He doesn't change His mind. He's, he's not you know, one day like the ancient Greek gods. He's mad one day and He's happy the next. But God is consistent. He's holy. He's pure. And everything He does is right. And we can always count on His character being the same. He doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed and decide, man, I'm going to smoke a nation today. And I don't mean smoke a nation, I mean a nation's gone, right? That's not the way God acts. It's not the way he works. I know, that was weird. I get it. So my key text today as we talk about Thanksgiving is from Luke's gospel, the 17th chapter, and uh, from verse 11 to 19. It's a great story. It's the story of Jesus doing a miracle for 10 men and one in 10 recognizes the miracle and offers thanks. And I want you, what I want you to see in this story is how by the end of the story, there's a closeness, there's a relationship that is begun, there's a connection that happens because one in 10 was thankful. So Luke chapter 17, and if you're new to the Bible or you're getting familiar with it, Luke is in the New Testament about two-thirds of the way back into the Bible, and you'll find the first book is Matthew, and then Mark, Luke, and John. So we're in Luke and verse 11 of chapter 17. You ready? It's going to be on the screen too. If you're ready, just wave your hand at me. Okay. Okay, here we go. Verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. He is Jesus. And by the way, every little word here is significant. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And I'm going to show you in a few minutes that the writer Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, chose the language of the text very purposely because he's making a point to us. He wants us to see something. So he's on the way to Jerusalem, he's passing between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers, not leopards, lepers, okay? And they stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went... They were cleansed, and that word means healed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, 
praising God with a loud voice, and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, also chosen by the Holy Spirit. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Amen. Isn't that a powerful story? Now, as we get into it, I want you to notice I'm going to start just with the idea of what I began with, and that is that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem between two regions. And these two regions, just so you know, so you know, represent two areas that were rejected during that time as being places that did not have the blessing of God on them like Jerusalem did. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And if you know anything about the story of the Bible, Jerusalem is always considered the city of God. It's, it's always shown in the Bible as a contrast between Babylon and Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You have those two cities. It starts in Genesis and all the way to the book of Revelation. As you wind the story of the scripture, Jerusalem and Babylon show up over and over again. They represent two distinct kingdoms, two distinct worldviews. One is the city of God, the dwelling place of God, where the temple of God was, where the people of God are, the capital of God's kingdom, as it were, on planet earth. And the other represents the city of man, the efforts of man, mankind's efforts to be his own God, to get to the top. And all the way in Genesis, we see the Tower of Babel being erected, which is where Babylon the city was. And then at the very end, we see this Babylonian harlot, and ultimately that Babylonian harlot falls in the book of Revelation, and a new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as established on earth. So in Genesis, the first book of the Bible... And in the Revelation, the 66th book of the Bible, we see the story of these two cities. And these two cities represent two, um, they're the antithesis of one another. They're opposites of one another. They're in conflict with one another. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where he's going to die. Jerusalem's where he's going to be buried. Jerusalem's where he's going to rise again. Jerusalem is the city that represents the kingdom, the throne place of the Messiah. And as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he passes between Samaria and Galilee. Samaria represented a people who at that time were known as a mixed race people despised by the Jews. They didn't have pure enough Hebrew blood in them. Their uh, relatives, those who'd gone before them, had mixed, had been a mixture of Jewish people who lived in the land in the northern part of the kingdom and resettled uh, countries that had been conquered by the Assyrians, and they'd mixed blood. And so the Jews in Jerusalem considered themselves to be the true people of God, and the people in Samaria were called dogs. They called them dogs. They had prejudices against them. Galilee was kind of like the backwater, the boondocks of Judea at the time. Uh, I joked in the first service, and I've said this here before, if you put it in our context, the way people in our own state would see things, you know, Seattle would be the Jerusalem of Washington State, and Moses Lake would be one of those places in Galilee, you know, and that's kind of how people saw things at that time. 
And so Jesus is between two places that were looked down on his way to the main city where God does his work. And yet he was willing to stop and intervene. He was willing to stop and restore people who had been rejected by that society. And I think it's really important for us to ask ourselves this question. Who are the people who represent our Samaria and our Galilee? In other words, when you think in your mind of people that you have an automatic aversion to, you you immediately, you're kind of repulsed by them. You avoid them. You don't want to deal with them. When you think about people in your own life, whether they be of a different race or ethnicity, whether they be of a different socioeconomic class or education, or maybe they're a person on the street or whatever it may be, maybe they're from another religion, but the people that trigger you that you don't want to have to deal with, and in your mind, you don't even realize it, but if you really examined what was going Going on inside of you when you're around them, you would find inside of you that you actually believe they're less than you are and you're above them. Okay, that's your Samaria. Or, you know, I hear people over here on the, on the east side of the state, you know, mock people in Seattle, right? Those people over there, the wet siders, joking, not the west siders, the wet siders, right? And just, you know, yeah, city folk, rah, 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 rah. And then, you know, people from that side of the state, yeah, Moses Lake, yeah, Moses Hole, right? right? And so we even develop, have you ever noticed we can develop prejudices around anything? Like human beings are really good about developing separations and putting the world into us versus them. We do it all the time, and we find all kinds of reasons to do it. Am I talking to anybody today? Okay, so anybody got sore toes right now? Okay, good, good. That's what I'm trying for. Bring them over here. Yeah. Okay, my second point then is Jesus was met by 10 lepers, and they stood at a distance. Leprosy and a variety of skin diseases at that time uh, were grounds for total isolation and rejection. The Jewish people of Jesus' time saw leprosy as a judgment from God. Most considered leprosy to be a sign of some kind of deep rebellion or horrific secret sin that the leper had committed. Lepers were outcasts, and the only people they could hang around with and have company with were fellow lepers. Okay, so Jesus is now between two rejected places, about to heal the most despised and rejected people in existence at that time. So that's the setting. He's on his way to the city of God, between two places rejected by the Jewish culture, and he comes across the most despised and rejected people within the culture. And he encounters them. And these 10 lepers then cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. What lepers would normally cry out can be found here in Leviticus 13, uh, verses 45 and 46. This is from the Old Testament, and it tells lepers what they're supposed to cry out. It says here, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So lepers normally, everywhere they went, they had to, you know, 
wear torn clothes, let their hair hang down. They had to keep their lip covered. And everywhere they went, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean. And immediately what that would do is let the people in the society know, ooh, here they come. The grossest, most rejected under the judgment of God. They're like that because of what they've done. They are getting the consequences of their sin and they deserve it. That's the way they were looked at. And that would cause everybody to make a wide berth. Don't get anywhere near them. If you get too close to them, it might get off on you, right? And that's kind of the way the society looked at it. But these guys cry out something different. They cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Have you ever cried out for mercy? But think about this. They don't know He's the Messiah yet. They know He does miracles, but they don't know he's the Messiah. That's obvious by their response. They just know that they've heard that this guy heals people. They do call him master, and they ha- ask him to have mercy. I was thinking to them, he was just a really special man. He wasn't God in the flesh. He was a special man. And, and think about how humiliating that would be. Think about your own life right now. It's one thing to talk to a God that you know is way above you and a God that you know will give you mercy, but you also can't see him. And, it's, and you know when you're doing it, you're in private. So you're like, God, have mercy on me. I did that thing again. Oops, I did it again. Have mercy on me. Right? We, we do that with God. But can you imagine the humiliation of crying out to people? Have you ever asked somebody that you loved in your life that you've blown it with over and over again, will you, will you have mercy on me? Please have mercy on me. Right, well, that's, that's what these men are doing. They're crying out to Jesus to have mercy. Mercy, I, I heard it say one time that mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve, and grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. It's a pretty good definition, huh? Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve, and grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. I want a little bit of more in my life, uh, of both, I should say. I want a lot more of both in my life. How about you? Anybody still hanging with me? You see, it's not an accident that Jesus was in this specific place at this specific time and showed compassion and love toward these specific men. God the Father loved these men, and he'd heard their cry of desperation. Jesus is moved with compassion for people who admit their need for mercy. That's why, listen, that's why if you're a proud person who can't admit your need, or who acts like you always have it together, or who just is holding on to the fact that you got to be strong and it doesn't matter and you're hardening yourself to love or human compassion or mercy from people, if you have this barrier inside of you and you're really proud, I just want to tell you, you're a sad, sad person in desperate need of the mercy of God. Because pride, see, in our society, we've made pride a virtue. In the Bible, pride is abhorrent to God. The scripture says he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Pride to God keeps back his mercy from us. It keeps back his grace from us. It literally erects a huge barrier and says, stay out, God. It's our way of saying, I'm God, and you're not. 
And so when we demonstrate humility and we, we come before God and we say, God, I'm a mess, I'm broken, I've been putting on airs, I've been trying to convince myself and everybody else that I got my act together, and I don't. And I desperately need your grace and your mercy. Forgive me, cleanse me, help me. I'm a mess, and I admit it. I've been trying to pretend I'm not, but I am. Help me, God. When we do that, God is moved. Jesus, we see him do it over and over again. He's moved with compassion, and he heals them. Over and over in the Gospels, we see people cry out, Jesus, Son of David, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. And Jesus immediately, his ears open wide, and he turns, and he moves toward them to take action. But he resists the proud. And that's why so many people have to go through so much loss and brokenness many times in their life before they're able to be recipients of mercy. And grace, because their pride is holding God at bay. God's moving toward them, and they're holding him at bay. And so what happens? People go through pain and brokenness, and it's often suffering that gets our attention. Right? Am I talking to anybody? And that suffering moves, God. And this is what happened here. These men are suffering and they're crying out, have mercy. Can you imagine living for years in the company of people like you that have leprosy? All of society has rejected you. You have no family anymore. You can't go home anymore. And you're, you're on the outskirts. You're on the outside of society continually and everybody despises you. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. And he's like, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to heal you. We see the next thing that happens is Jesus saw them and directed them toward restoration. This is beautiful. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Interesting. In this case, he didn't touch them. In this case, he, he didn't even move toward them. He was already in their vicinity, but he just said, I see, he saw them and he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And I love the language here because the first words are, when Jesus saw them. Okay, have you ever felt like you're not being seen? Have you ever felt in your relationship with God like you're not being seen? Right? He sees everybody else, but he doesn't see you. But I want to assure you, he's looking at you. He saw them. I was sharing in the first service, and I'm just being real with you here, okay? So it's okay if I be real? Amen. But I think it's going to relate to some of you. I'm frustrated, like many of us in our community, about what to do about the homeless situation, right? And I feel frustrated at times, like, I don't just want to keep throwing money at it, right? Because I, I know a lot of times that money is going to be used for meth. It's going to be used for opiates. It's going to be used for heroin. It's going to be used for more alcohol. Sometimes it's not, but many times it is. A couple of years ago, Peggy and I volunteered, and some of you in here also were a part of that. We were part of the warming center here in the community. We worked with the homeless. We'd stay the night with them at the warming center. And I, I remember during that time sitting down with a number of the homeless people in Moses Lake and saying, please tell me your story. How did you get here? What happened? And do you know not one time did I ever hear, oh, well, you know, I just don't feel like working. You know, parents call me lazy. I just want to hang out on the streets. I don't want to get a job. And yet our answer so many times, get a job. Do something with your life. 
But as I heard stories, I was shocked. Actually, I wasn't. It's kind of what I expected. What are the stories I heard? Devastating life circumstances. You know, sexual abuse, um, deaths in the family, and, and one event after another, and then the loss of a job. And, and what happened in the midst of it? Self-medication. Started using. Hurting? Started using. Everything fell apart? Started using. And then out of that use, I got addicted. And then out of that addiction, I had to feed that addiction. And then I got more and more desperate. What am I willing to do? I'll rob from anybody, steal from anybody to feed that addiction because it's got me. Right? But I'm like you. You know, there's this thing inside of me. I come driving up to Walmart. I go around the corner down here onto Stratford Phil. And I, I want to look away. I don't want to make eye contact, because I know if I make eye contact, they're going to come to the window, and the hand's going to be out, and I'm going to have to go through the whole thing. And sometimes I give, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't have it. But there's that thing, that temptation in me, look away, look away. But I felt challenged months ago. I felt like the Holy Spirit told me to quit looking away and to look at people, because those are people. They're not the homeless. They're not them. It's not us versus them. Those are human beings made in the image and likeness of God. Now, they might not be dealing with, maybe you went through tragedy like they did, and somehow you've been able to come out of it. But I want to tell you something. That wasn't because you are so good and cool and got your act together. It was because God's mercy and grace moved toward you and lifted you out of the pit. And he probably used people with compassion and love, right? And so I found myself, the Lord speaking to my heart and saying, look at people, look them in the eye, notice them, notice their humanity, show them dignity, smile at them, talk to them, right? That's just being human. That's not, you know, that's not even really that great. That's just being human. And Jesus saw them. He didn't look away. He didn't say, oh gosh, these lepers, man, they're always asking for healing. He healed them, right? And notice what he said. He said, go. You staying with me? Come on, church, stay with me now. He said, go show yourself to the priest. Why did he say that? Because see, in, in Israeli culture, if a person had leprosy, and they began to get healed, and they got healed, they would go to the priest, and the priest would literally examine them, their skin over their whole body. They would stand in front of the priest, and the priest would examine their arms, and wherever they had leprosy, they were examined. And when they were done being examined, they would be washed and cleansed, they would go through a ritual process, and then they would be restored to the community. So they would go from being outside the camp to inside the camp and once again embraced. And so what's Jesus saying in effect? He's saying, you're about to be restored to the community. You're coming home. You're no longer on the outside looking in. You're, you're back in. Whew. Yeah. Isn't that powerful? And what did they do? They obeyed, and as they went, I love the language, and as they went... They were healed. So they're walking toward the priest, and they start to be healed. But then one of the ten does something profound. 
And, and my next point is truly restored people turn back to Jesus and thank him. So then one of them, verse 15, when he saw that he was healed. So imagine this. I, I love the picture in my mind. Imagine this man. He turns. He starts to do what Jesus says. He's walking toward where Jerusalem is. Toward, toward, you know, Actually, in their area, probably toward a synagogue where a priest was, part of the priesthood. And he's walking toward that city or whatever. And in the midst of it, he's looking down at himself and he's watching in front of his own eyes as his skin changes and becomes like baby skin. And at that moment, he recognizes oh, the real priest, the true priest, isn't in the city. He's that man, Jesus. And he turns. The other nine keep going. And he turns and he goes back to Jesus. Powerful. And he thanks him. In fact, it goes on to say... He turned back, praising God with a loud voice. Now, you think the other nine would have went, oh, you're right, you're right. No, he's like, praise God, look at me, guys. And they're like, yeah, I know it's happening to us, too. Wow, yeah, look at me, look at me. Oh, praise God, come on. And they keep going. They keep going. And he makes his way back to Jesus and falls on his face at Jesus' feet. That's an act of worship. The very old one of the very Old Testament words for worship means to lay on your face. So he lays on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving him thanks. Can you imagine? He's, his head's down at the feet of Jesus. He's on his face. He's, thank you, Master, Master. Thank you, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I know I'm being melodramatic here, but when you read the text... You can't help but get that picture. It wasn't like, hey, man, thanks. I just want to say, knuckles, <laughs> high five. No, man, he's, you know, he's been outside. He's been rejected. He's been despised. And now he's loved and he's embraced. You know, over the years, it's been sad to watch a lot of people like the one in 10 here. They get touched, they get healed, they get liberated up here. Somebody's praying for them. They experience a turning and then God does something miraculous for me, fixes something in their marriage or they go through a miracle and they get a new job or money comes or they get physically healed or they get restored and forgiven. But in a short time, sometimes immediately, it's like they walk out that door and they're the other nine. But every once in a while, you get a one in ten. And I've heard people over the years like, why, why don't we see more of the people that go to the altar or come to the cross? What? I'm like, you know, in the Bible, if Jesus, the greatest preacher ever, who literally was God in the flesh, only got one in ten to come back and follow his altar call, I guess human beings are the same. Amen? Amen? Matthew Henry, one of a great theologian and um, commentator who wrote a commentary that we often use when we study, was once accosted by thieves and robbed of his money bag. He wrote these words in his diary. Let me be thankful first because I, have, I was never robbed before. Secondly, because although they took my bag, they did not take my life. Thirdly, because they took my all, although they took my all, it was not much. <laughs> who can say amen? amen? And fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. That's thankfulness. Right? You work with what you got, baby. He's like, I ain't got nothing, but man, I'm alive. And I didn't do the robbing. 
and I'm okay. It's tough. That's perspective. And lastly, and this is really where I want to end up, is thankful people, thankful outcasts, get the attention and the knowing of Jesus. They encounter him and become his. They are both, they both know him and are known by him. Verses 16 through 19 says this, now he was a Samaritan. Remember the rejected people, the so-called mixed race, half-breeds? Well, that's who he was. And Jesus answered him, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Obviously, now a crowd is gathered. And Jesus is addressing the crowd like, look, you guys think you're the chosen people. You think you're all holy and good. Why is the only one who came back a Samaritan? What's up with that? I thought you people had faith. You can hear the challenge in what Jesus says. And he says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Amen. Thankful people are known by Jesus. And they know Jesus. This man had a revelation of who the true priest was and who it was that healed him. When he was made well, he was rescued from leprosy and sin. He was saved. His thankful heart led him to a relationship encounter with Jesus, the one who could truly heal him of his spiritual leprosy, being a sinner, right? Thankfulness leads us to know and be known by Jesus. And I was thinking about this all through the New Testament. When Paul speaks of thankfulness, he, it's like he sprinkles it in like an ingredient in the midst of several other things. He says, when you pray, offer thanks. And in, in the midst of, of getting the Word of God into you, be thankful. And we see all these texts where thankfulness and thanksgiving are scattered throughout the text in the midst of other things you do. And I, I, I've noticed something in the Bible that when people turned back and were thankful and recognized their source and saw who was really giving them the thing that they needed, when they did that, it was like magnetic toward God. It was like a pull toward God. Something happens which attracts the presence. In this case, Jesus, he turns back and Jesus turns to him and says, are you the only one? Your faith has made you whole. You're good. You're well. Your faith has saved you. See, thankfulness and thanksgiving is so attractive to God because it takes humility. It's our way of saying to God, I'm not in charge. I'm not on my own throne. You are. I recognize that everything good in me Everything I have, every ability. You might say, well, I'm, I, I've worked hard to get where I am. Who gave you that ability to work hard? Who helped put a mentality in you that's different from someone else? You know, well, I'm, I'm a really creative person, and I work hard at my craft, and I work hard at playing my instrument or whatever I do. All of it is gift. 
When you begin to believe that you're the source of anything in your life, that's when your heart begins to turn away from God and you become your own God. But when you recognize that everything you have, everything you can do, every ability is all gift, you can't be proud. All you can do is be thankful. And when you're thankful, you'll attract God. And and God will be evident in your life. But it's when we begin to think that we are somehow intrinsically better than another human being and I got where I am because I worked harder than somebody else, that's when we're in trouble because all of it came from God. Every bit of it. Yes, we apply it. Yes, we have our part in it. And that's mystery. I don't understand the mystery of how our part, God's part. But here's the thing. Even our part is because he made us a certain way. So all of it is gift. And the only response to gifts Thank you, Papa. I know that's cheesy and corny and everything else, but it's true. Thank you, God the Father. It all came from you. Amen. Stand with me.